Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, October 12th. We begin with the latest on the Hockey Canada controversy. We speak with award-winning filmmaker, author and journalist Laura Robinson for her thoughts on what she believes the future holds for the organization now that the CEO and board of directors has finally stepped down. Then we get an update on the war in Ukraine. We catch up with Andrew Rusoulis from the Canadian Global Affairs Institute for details on the ramped up Russian missile attacks on Kyiv and how the dynamics of the conflict may change come winter. It's National Farmers Day. We get a rundown on how the 2022 harvest is looking and what challenges lie ahead for producers over the coming months from farmer and agronomist Matt Gosling. And finally, fall is here and holidays are just around the corner. We catch up with Ellen Percival, publisher of Calgary's Child Magazine, for some seasonal tips and suggestions to keep the kids entertained. Yesterday, Hockey Canada's CEO and entire board of directors stepped down following the organization's handling of sexual assault allegations. What can Hockey Canada do to rebuild their brand? With Insight, we are joined by filmmaker, author, and journalist Laura Robinson, who has reported on sexual abuse as well as racial and sexual discrimination in Canadian sports. Good morning to you, Laura. Good morning. How do you see this as, as far as how meaningful the resignation of the Hockey Canada's CEO and board of directors is? Well, I think it had to happen in order for anyone to move forward on this. And it, if you watch the Heritage Committee meetings when they were um, you know, questioning Hockey Canada, you could see that none of them really believed that they were getting the straight goods uh, from the the people who were representing Hockey Canada. So until that changed, and it changed yesterday, I don't think that even the Heritage Committee uh, were confident that they could that the job was being done properly. So now that there will be um, new representation, and and they really have to think through who is going to represent Hockey Canada. Uh, then we can start to really look into the culture. Laura, totally agree, and obviously I think most everybody can agree that it took way too long for this whole group of people to step down. But, you know, as you lead into this, then what will it take to regain the confidence of Canadians in this organization? Well, I think it's very important to remember that these... Junior players, uh, the alleged uh, gang assaulters in London, Ontario, all came from CHL teams. And the CHL is only an associate member of Hockey Canada. So the only reason that they were representing Hockey Canada in London in June 2018 was because of the Hockey Canada Gala, where they were feted. Uh, so we also need to look at how how does the CHL play itself out? Because that's where... The real problem is, and yes, hockey. these guys were on the national hockey team. However, they all came from the CHL. So it's not just Hockey Canada that needs to look very closely at what it's doing. It, it's everyone's relationship, and that means every city that has a CHL team in it. We need to look at how are these young men understanding female sexuality and, and consent? Laura, we all thought, I'm I'm really going out on a limb saying this, but I think that all Canadians thought, well, what's going on? Why hasn't this board, uh, you know, tendered the resignation? Why hasn't the CEO stepped down? Was it, in your opinion, uh, you know, the sponsors pulling out that really did this? Was was that the final straw? Well, I think Bauer 
you know, if anything represents hockey in Canada in a historic way, that is Bauer. And now I'm sure that the um, decision to uh, resign must have t- been taken sometime during the weekend. So we had we had the interim chair Andrea Skinner resign on you know Saturday night of a long weekend, and then uh, Tuesday morning everyone else, and in between that time Bauer leaves. Uh, so I, I feel that I I feel that there were a lot of people involved with Hockey Canada who probably didn't sit down to a turkey dinner. Yeah, no doubt about that. So on that note, Laura, then I mean, do we need a national inquiry into the toxic nature of sexual assault and abuse in Canadian sport hockey, particularly? What do you think that looks like moving forward? We absolutely do, and thank you for mentioning that because I really believe that. I don't think I'm the only person who believes that that uh, sport right now has a toxic culture. The Minister of Sport, uh, Pascal Senange, said that. So many athletes have come forward. Last week, the Olympic gold medalists, the women rowers, came forward about the toxic culture in rowing. So we have so many athletes who have worked so hard and committed themselves for so many years uh, to represent Canada properly uh, in the world, and this is how they were treated, that has to be investigated, and it has to be investigated, as you mentioned, in a federal inquiry, to the point where uh, it has the sort of power that the Heritage Committee had. Uh, People have to be subpoenaed. Laura, we're speaking with, by the way, Laura Robinson, award-winning filmmaker, author, and journalist. Throughout this, we have seen the different provincial branches, you know, governing hockey, have their words, you know, some stepping away to a certain extent from Hockey Canada. Knowing that there's kind of these satellite organizations within the country, do we really need a Hockey Canada as we, we had it in the past? Well, the thing about Hockey Canada is it is the umbrella organization for for competitive hockey in Canada and it has a very it has the most important relationship with the IIHF the International Ice Hockey Federation so Canada can't send teams to the worlds or the Olympics unless we have a, a national umbrella organization recognized by the IIHF and recognized by the IOC the International Olympic Committee so we have to have some organization that will be recognized internationally so our athletes can uh, compete internationally. Now, it's a very interesting proposition. Uh, Could we just form a new organization? Mm -hmm. Um, I think there'll be a lot of lawyers involved if we do. Um, And uh, we need to, I think we need to look all the way up. What is the IIHF? How does it address these sorts of things as well because it um it it uh, it unleashes like a very uh, significant can of worms what has happened agree and you know kind of just before we let you go i'm curious so we know the organization needs to be rebooted top to bottom bottom to top but what about the players involved should there be some further consequences and do we need to know and dig deeper into exactly who these players are what they've done and make all that public as well well i'm i'm happy that both the the london city police and the halifax police are reinvestigating you know the london 2018 allegations halifax 2003 i believe that once we create an environment in which uh 
victims feel safe about coming forward, that they too they'll be will be hearing more allegations. And and you know we also have a huge class action suit uh, led by Daniel Carcello, a former NHL player who was a CHL player, um, alleging extraordinary amounts of abuse uh, through hazings and initiations of junior hockey players. So it's a it's a very deeply embedded uh, culture, and I have a feeling that there'll be many investigations to come. Very interesting times. Thank you very much for your time this morning, Laura. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Laura Robinson, award-winning filmmaker, author, and journalist. How much have you been following this at home? What are your thoughts? How do we recreate an organization that Laura said is somewhat, to a certain extent, a prerequisite to play hockey on that international mm-hmm. level? We need something. But, but can it's we... so broken. It's broken. So how do, is this just an office somewhere, and maybe here in Calgary or Toronto or Vancouver, that stamps papers so our players can play and we do our own individual things in the, in the provinces? And we know where so our money goes when yeah. we are putting our kids in hockey? Maybe a chance to get things right. Leaders met virtually yesterday for an emergency meeting about the Russia-Ukraine war. What more can be done to help bring this conflict to an end, especially after the bombardment of the last couple of days? With some insight, we're joined this morning by our friend Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and expert in Eastern European affairs. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for joining us again. Hello and good morning. Good morning. Lots of uh, bombing going on. Probably some of the, I guess, the, the biggest bombardment we've seen as of yet, perhaps. Yes, what do yes. we know about was, yesterday's yes, G- G7? the highest escalation. Yes, it was. They hit, they hit uh, a, a wide swath of Ukraine, more, in, more uh, targets in one day throughout all of Ukraine than at any other time previous in this war. The other key thing about the nature of the bombing was that it hit, in some cases, right downtown, like in Kiev. They hit the government buildings, or government district, yeah, some buildings. Uh, they hit uh, tourist areas. This was had been, up till now, off-limits. They had mostly focused on infrastructure, uh, uh, the electrics, uh, you know, which they still went after, but they had diverted into other areas now, too. This was a most definite signal of an escalation. Signal of an uh, escalation, Andrew. Uh, But can we point our fingers at the one thing that was the ramp-up point? Was it the Crimea bridge explosion? That was maybe the visible trigger. But uh, this operation had been planned for for some time now. And this is also in response to uh, two other issues. Uh, One, uh, Putin and, well, the Russian military has not been very successful. In fact, they've had uh, significant operational defeats in the last few weeks, as we've talked about. There is also um, growing dissent in Russia. And I'm not just referring to the people who don't want to get mobilized or trying to run away, the younger crowd, but amongst the more established uh, elites, uh, those who we call ultra-nationalists, who are actually criticizing for Putin uh, for not doing enough in Ukraine, for, for having suffered those setbacks. And, and Putin is, in a way, reacting to that criticism by showing, look, I'm doing more. So he's made them, he's made the ultranationals happy with this operation. He's taking care of that political spectrum. Andrew, what do we know about that uh, emergency G7 meeting that was done virtually yesterday? Yeah, so basically um, they did uh, two things. Um, on the military side, they basically uh, uh, acceded to uh, to Zelensky's request for more 
uh, anti, anti, anti-missile systems, uh, which they have and they did use effectively uh, on Sunday. They, they, uh, they may have knocked out about 50% of the incoming Russian uh, missiles, but they need more. And uh, there's a possibility, a strong one, that Russia may repeat this. So the, the, the U.S. has pledged more and Germany also stepped up and said they are actually sending some anti, anti-missile systems like as we speak. The other thing that the G7 communique said yesterday was that they were prepared to support Ukraine in a winter war situation, which meant extra support, uh, because winter will be stressful and more costly for the military, but also for the people themselves. And so this is an acknowledgement, actually, now that this war is not ending anytime soon and that uh, everyone needs to be prepared for uh, a long-haul war, certainly throughout the winter. With that winter war... Andrew, that we're looking ahead to, does one side is one side more favored? Is, is this is more challenging for the Russian invaders or for the defenders in Ukraine? Generally, in a winter war situation, the defender is favored because offensive movement is more difficult in in, in rough weather conditions. Uh, that doesn't preclude offensive actions, particularly once the ground freezes. When it's when it's soft, then it's very difficult to move. But when it gets very cold, then movement becomes possible. But again, you are moving in, you know, sub-zero weather, which is very cold, and and, uh, people just don't move as fast as they do with all the winter garb and the conditions of winter uh, weather than in summertime. So I think overall I'd say the defense is favored. Andrew, let's talk a little bit about um, yesterday was... um uh, President Biden that that uh, uttered the term war crimes yet again. So, are are what is what's happening in Ukraine? Can it be labeled as war crimes? And will Putin ever be tried as a war criminal? Do you think? Yeah. Well, two two key things. One is that there there is an international process, the International Court of Justice, which is examining the continual uh, violence uh, against civilians uh, in Ukraine, and they are making those assessments. Now, the the law of war is very specific about what constitutes a war crime, what is legitimate, you know, kinetic action and violence against an opponent. Now, there, and, and the, 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 there's, a, there's a whole legal body of opinion on that, and that is being addressed by the experts. As far as uh, uh, trying uh, Putin and, let's say, his leadership on that, that remains a very distant prospect because, first of all, um, you have to capture him. Uh, in order to capture him, you either have to defeat Russia completely, and they're a nuclear superpower, so that is a, a very big challenge, uh, or there's a regime change, and then you have to assume that the regime change favors the West. And right now, the most speculation is if there is a regime change, it'll get tougher and harder, so Putin would be protected. So the possibility of Putin and his senior government officials being tried is remote. The, the fact that they actually will put up charges in, in The Hague and so on, yes. But how the trial, whether he'll be in the dock is quite remote. But we, again, do not know how this war will end and when it will end. Mm-hmm. Not sure about the ending. And uh, there's so many questions as far as being sure about the quality and skill of the Russian soldiers that are being put onto the front lines right now, Andrew. And we heard, what, a couple of weeks ago that uh, there were going to be another 300,000 troops added, and we've heard that maybe 60,000 deaths uh, for the Russian side. How reliable is this information, Andrew? And what do we know about the quality of the soldiers on well, the front line? 
Yeah, the, the numbers of deaths and so on right now, those figures are not, there's nothing reliable on either the Ukrainian or the Russian side. So we just have to understand that there are significant losses of life and casualties for both militaries as well as civilians in Ukraine. But now the mobilization question is a very good one and, and quite pertinent to the fact that one of the other things Putin has done to placate the uh, the ultranationalists, uh, he, he did the the, mobilize, the, the partial mobilization. That's partial, three hundred thousand. They could go to eight hundred thousand if they went all out, um, but they partially mobilized, and that partial mobilization, by all evidence, besides the fact people who are running away and actually not uh, being uh, subjecting themselves to mobilization. Those that are coming, we're hearing reports, I think reasonably accurate, that there's uh, a lot of drunkenness going on, uh, the, the equipment's not there, even some of the uniforms are not there. And I think that those, those um, reservists who are mobilized and actually equipped are being put in the line rather quickly, perhaps not with all the training we would expect reservists to have as a refresher training, uh, and they're putting in piecemeal to replace the, uh, the significant losses that the Russian forces are experiencing in the front. Andrew, we always appreciate your time and, and breaking things down for us. Thanks for joining us this morning. You're very welcome. Thank Thanks. You. Andrew Rasoulis, fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and expert in Eastern European affairs. successful has harvest season been for Alberta farmers joining us to talk about and give us a little snapshot of how Alberta's agriculture industry is doing. We're joined this morning by agronomist and farmer Matt Gosling. Hi Matt, thanks for being with us again. Hi, good morning. Pleasure chatting with you and happy Farmer's Day by the way. Yeah, thank you very much. I I almost get the impression that there might be two farmers days because i think there's one in june also but uh, all the merrier well frankly our texter cam says it's farmers day every day in in fact three times a day it is happy farmers day right every time we eat every, every time we eat that's right hey Gotta matt come from somewhere you know it it's been sunny and hot but very dry throughout this year how was this year's crop um, well, 90% of our rainfall came within about 30 days this year. So from uh, June 4th to July 4th, if we didn't get that rain, we'd be probably in as poor or poorer of a shape as we were last year through the worst drought that we've seen uh, since 2002, uh, anyways, if not worse. But um, we had a, a very good cereal crop. Um by commodity price, probably record-breaking from a, a farm income standpoint. Um, the canola crop and, and the pea crop, uh, the, the canola crop especially suffered. Like, we will be in a crop insurance claim, which sounds weird. We had fantastic cereal yields, great price. Um, the canola crop, just through the conditions we had in July and August, with the hot and dry and I can't count on on all of my fingers twice the number of times I, I talked to farmers saying if we only had one more significant rain. All right. Well, let's but, talk. You know, so, so next to last year, I mean, that was a, a dismal year. Average, can we call it average this year then? Um, overall, I'd, I'd say it's probably average to above average. You know, the, the cereal crop carried a significant weight this year, um, and the pulse crops did okay. But the, the thing that, that's kind of overwhelming right now in, in the 
farmer's mind is the amount of volatility out there in the market right now. Like there, there's still the Russia-Ukraine tension mm-hmm. uh, that seems to be ramping up a little bit uh, from a huge agricultural exporting um, market. Um, the soil moisture, we are as dry as we were for the last three years. And we went in the spring last year with no significant snowfall. Um, so we we were literally on, on a razor's edge last year, uh, right up until it started raining in early June. That's what I wanted to ask you, Matt. What what do farmers hope for over the winter? Is it, you know, are you optimistic looking towards the spring? Do you hope for a ton of snow to get that moisture into the ground? Well, as the age-old saying goes, if you're not uh, optimistic, then you're you're typically not a farmer. Um, We're always optimistic. And uh, next year country, one of those uh, other old adages in in the farming community. But, um, you know, that... The other volatility in, in the whole market is, is fertilizer production. We are already at prices seen last spring, which were probably record highs. And there's usually only one way fertilizer prices go between now and seeding, and it's up. So the, there is lots of volatility. Like Thankfully, the, the commodity prices are still very strong, so there, there's always that optimism that if we get the rain, we'll grow a good crop, and it will be worth money to cover our expenses. But yeah, it's we're we're very optimistic. The, the commodity prices are are exceptionally strong, and uh, we didn't have last year. We were fighting with mm-hmm. uh, farmers being aggressive with their their pricing and pre-selling crop that we didn't get. So there was a lot of contracts not met, and that got into some pretty sticky sticky situations with the, the grain companies and having to buy out contracts and that. Yep. And I, I haven't heard of any of that this year. So that's a, a very good thing not to have to deal with that sort of conflict. There's a bonus. We'll have to leave it there for time, Matt, but thank you for your time and happy Farmer's Day to you. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on again. Yeah, thank you. It's Matt Gosling, agronomist and farmer. Calgary's Child Magazine out with a new edition. This time it's all about fall fun, a guide to the holidays, and wellness and inclusivity. To talk about it all, we're joined this morning by Ellen Percival, publisher at Calgary's Child Magazine. Hi, Ellen. Good morning. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. This is a huge edition with a ton (laughs) of great stuff. But what's so great about and fun about fall anyway, Ellen? Well, besides the beautiful weather and the colors, we've got... 10 fabulous bike rides that are going to take you all around the city, which is so fun. We've got, oh, we, we can take you to the mountains. How about we go waterfall chasing in the Kananaskis? We planned a fun day in Banff. Um, it, skating when things, you know, freeze over a little bit. We've got all kinds of fun in this issue. There's so many Halloween events coming up, and it won't be long until those Christmas markets which is my favorite time Me of too, year. Me too, I love it. <laughs> you two are going to be holding hands, drinking a hot cocoa at you the know it. Christmas yeah. market. Skipping candy down cans. the aisles. Uh, doing the samples. <laughs> I mean. Yeah, there's really, yes, Ellen. <laughs> I, I, I do like this idea because it is going to get colder, hard to believe, because it feels like summer right now, but maybe some cozy cafes that allow you to bring the kids in as well. Yes, we, we did a few of our favorite picks, and 
There's some wonderful cafes. I mean, if you think about the Regal Cafe, Cafe on 10th Street and 3rd, or the Hexagon Board Games, or Luke's at Central Park or at Central Library, we've got a ton of them in here. And they all offer something, a little special experience when you bring the kids with you. I love that. Speaking of kids, you've got uh, a little help uh, with <laughs> tips for keeping the peace. <laughs> Sibling rivalry. I mean, it may not be a big deal right now, but once we get into the holidays and everybody's home together, oh. look out. I love this article because it, this one is about setting boundaries first so that no one gets hurt. You know, the difference between roughhousing and when it goes too far, but also empowering your kids. And so I noticed that 4.45 when you're playing with your sister or your brother, um, you know, hmm, things go south and there's a lot of fighting. What might we do at 4.45 instead? Or when? what can we do that maybe isn't this game? Or how can we manage this conflict so it doesn't happen all the time? And it's about finding patterns of, okay, when, when do things sort of fall apart at your house? And is it always around the same time? And is it always around the same type of play? Well, maybe let's change that up. And let's help the kids, when you're calmed down, let's talk about why are you so upset? Why are you so upset? How can we handle this going forward? So I love that it involves the kids. It's not just go to your room, you know, or I'm throwing this toy out. How many of us have said that? And you still can't handle it. I'm throwing this toy out. So before you sort of resort to that, there's some great strategies in here. Great strategies, and I know we can get it online at uh, calgaryschild.com. We can also pick up a physical copy. Whereabouts, Ellen? Where can we get these uh, copies? All over the city, but we restock at the major grocery stores uh, twice a week, so there's always a good supply there. Good stuff. Got your whole fall laid out for you. If you're a parent, you need this resource for sure. Calgaryschild.com. Thanks so much, Ellen. Thank you. Ellen Percival, publisher of Calgary's Child Magazine.